Well, Benjamin Buford Blue, better known as Bubba, is a major character from the movie Forrest Gump. The movie chronicled the life of a fictitious, intellectually disabled man with a heart of gold by the name of Forrest. If you're familiar with the movie, you will know that it chronicled different seasons of Forrest's life from childhood through adulthood. In one of those seasons, Forrest finds himself in the horrific setting of the Vietnam War. It is in those circumstances that Forrest meets his best friend, Benjamin Buford Blue, or we better know him as Bubba. And Bubba, like Forrest, was a little intellectually slow, but had a heart of gold, a heart of gold. In the worst of wartime circumstances, Bubba's face would light up with pure joy when he dreamed of the future where he, like his family, would one day own a shrimp boat company. The mere thought of shrimp caused Bubba to come alive with pure joy, and in one sweltering jungle scene with bullets flying and in circumstances horrible, Bubba, Bubba told Forrest, quote, shrimp is the fruit of the sea. You can barbecue it, boil it, broil it, bake it, saute it. There's shrimp kebabs, shrimp creole, shrimp gumbo, pan-fried, deep-fried, stir-fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, and shrimp sandwiches. And that, Bubba said, I think is about it. (laughs) Well, like all of us, Bubba met his death. The circumstances... Bubba found himself in Vietnam were tragic, but he could escape them by looking to the one thing that brought him pure joy, and that was the thought of shrimp and his own shrimp boat company. Beloved, all kinds of temporal things bring us joy. Pause right now for just a second, maybe even close your eyes and and think about as we are moving towards lunch, your very favorite meal. Your favorite meal. I like to believe that Pepperoni pizza is going to be in heaven. Well, if you're anything like me, as you're thinking about those things, your stomach is <laughs> beginning to move and a smile that expresses your joy begins to shape on your face. Merriam-Webster defines the word joy as the emotion evoked by well-being or the prospect of possessing what one desires. Let me say that again. Joy is an emotion evoked by well-being or the future prospect of, of possessing what one desires. And let me say this. If we put our hope right in, in possessing something temporal, our joy will always remain temporal. However, if we put our hope in something eternal, we will experience pure joy, right? A joy that cannot be taken from us through any of life's horrific and difficult circumstances. And speaking of those horrific circumstances, the Apostle Paul often found himself amidst them. In 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 28 through, or 24 through 28, Paul recorded some of the hardships he had gone through, saying, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was sown. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. 
I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, though, uh, and though and through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such things, the Apostle Paul would go on to say the Uh, those external things, that the pressure of the churches that he had begun never went away. As you may know, Paul was a prolific church planter in the first century, and he would go from town to town sharing the gospel and then planting those churches or starting those churches so that those who had been saved had the opportunity to be discipled. And inasmuch as he was committed to starting churches, there were those who were coming behind him to destroy him. And as a matter of fact, that big list of stuff I just read to you is all in a response to those who would come behind Paul and try and tell him, don't believe Paul, believe us. And they would stir up the church and create division. Paul had that pressure of the churches daily upon him. While he was chained to a Roman guard in horrible circumstances in Rome, he took that time to pin the little letter to a church in Philippi who was going through some internal divisions. He said this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. you imagine? Rejoice in the Lord when you feel good. Rejoice in the Lord when things are going your way. Rejoice in the Lord always. Think of all the things the apostle has been through. Just imagine hanging on to some piece of some shipwrecked boat adrift in the sea, thinking, wonder how this is going to end. Imagine being whipped 39 times, 40 times minus one by the Jews, people who would, who would just, just berate you for your personality and who you were. Imagine planting churches only to know that people would just come in behind you and begin to undo them, undo them, and lie to people about you and your character. Imagine being stuck in prison in Rome, knowing that God himself, Jesus, showed up to you in a vision and said, go to the nations and preach the gospel. And he's stuck in prison and he says, rejoice, (laughs) rejoice, rejoice always. In every circumstances, have joy. How in the world could the Apostle Paul do that? How could he do it? Beloved, Paul could write while in horrific circumstances to a church who was in horrific circumstances and tell them to have joy because his hope was in eternity. As a matter of fact, 14 times in the letter to to the Philippians, he would use that word or some form of it, have joy joy in your life. Is your life marked by joy? Effectively, like Bubba from Forrest Gump, when Paul was tested and tried with difficult circumstances, he would put his mind on the Lord. And like Bubba, pure joy would light up his face at the prospect, listen here, of possessing eternity with the Lord. Possessing eternity with the Lord. Does it Make you happy when you're going through the trials and the struggles of life to just, just escape those for a moment and realize life is not all about the now, right? As a matter of fact, it's all about the future. 
after this life is over. And yes, we'll go through circumstances, and yes, we'll have trials, and yet we'll have victories. But we should look to the joy that lies before us, right? And the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? If you happen to be joining us for the first time this morning at Capital City Church, you are joining us as we harmonize the Gospels and preach through the life of Jesus Christ. We are in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We have studied the birth and childhood of Christ, the incredible ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism and temptation of Jesus, and Jesus' emergence out of the wilderness. And beloved, today our attention turns from the ministry of John the Baptist to a new series, a sub-series that we've titled Authenticating or the Authentication of the King. Not only is this authentication coming from John the Baptist who stood in front of the crowds and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Today, we'll see that authenticating nature of Jesus' claims to be the King, the God of this universe, through the miraculous and manifested signs that he does. Beloved, for us, the big idea in this text is that Jesus manifested his glory so that all who believe, no matter their horrific circumstances, if you are in the worst of times in your life, you can think on Christ and have joy. Again, I say, rejoice. Amen? Last week, we studied four days in John chapter one at the end of the uh, the end of the chapter there, starting in verse nineteen, and today, as I said, you can turn and turn your attention to chapter two. But we studied four days, which were recorded at the end of the Apostle John's Gospel in chapter one. We noted a major shift in the text, where John the Baptist effectively said, "Don't follow me, but follow the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world." Andrew and John were standing there when John the Baptist proclaimed that to all, and they followed Jesus first, remember? Andrew's brother, Simon Peter, joined them, and then on their way to Galilee, Jesus found Philip, and Philip invited Nathanael to come and see Jesus. So if you're tracking along, Jesus' ministry is three days old at this point, and he has gathered five of his soon-to-be twelve apostles. Often narratives in the scripture can be nicely divided up into a situation, a complication, a resolution, and a celebration. Today's narrative fits that structure well, so uh, let's hop into the situation or the setting that Jesus has been invited into. Verse 1 says this, On the third day was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, it's best to think of the third day as the third day after Jesus and his disciples have been in Galilee, where Nathanael made his proclamation, remember, about Jesus, whom he believed at that point in time to be the Christ, the King of Israel. Pretty big statement, remember? So, three days have now passed. He's up in the Galilee region, and it is on the third day 
that this wedding in Cana of Galilee is going to happen. Therefore, it has been a full seven days since John the Baptist was interrogated by the priests and Levites, and six days since Jesus came out of the wilderness. In chapter 1, verse 43, we saw that Jesus had purposed to go to Galilee, and no doubt it is to make his way to this wedding in Cana, just like you and I, and we'll start hearing of all the weddings that will be going on this summer and, and fall, right? There's a plan for these weddings, and, and I look out and see Megan Pope smile as, as this is a season they often get busy uh, taking pictures of those weddings, right? There's a plan. It goes on the calendar, and, and this is on Jesus's calendar, and he is heading to Cana at Galilee, not by some kind of surprise, but he is going to this wedding, as we'll see he has been invited. So track with me here. Jesus, Andrew, and John have moved north from Jericho, that region in the south by Judah, and picked up Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathanael as they moved into Galilee where Cana was. Now Cana was only about a three-hour walk or about eight miles northeast of Nazareth, so very close together. Jesus and his four brothers, you'll remember uh, from our study in Luke in his early childhood, uh, grew up in Nazareth. And so his four brothers and sisters uh, grew up there in Nazareth, just a few hours away and a few miles away from Cana. Now, sometimes (laughs) this is much debated, but we'll hop in it. I'm just going to let the text say what it says is, Sometimes it catches us off guard that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We don't focus on that much in the text. But it is in the text, and it's here in our text today. And, and uh, uh, there's a little later instance when Jesus moves back to his hometown, and he goes to Nazareth, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3 uh, records it. And his hometown is very surprised. They have a hard time. You'll know that, that in this context, Jesus says a prophet has no honor. He's without honor in his hometown. And this is one of the instances that that is recorded. And so this is a later than this wedding in Cana. But I just want to show you the, the very clear fact that the gospel writers acknowledge Jesus has got brothers and sisters. And what does it say? Is not this the carpenter? That's Jesus, the son of Mary, and brother of James, one brother, Joseph, number two, Judas, number three, and Simon, number four. And are not his sisters here with us? Plural. So what do we know? There's, Jesus has at least six brothers and sisters, right? Uh, which clearly points to the fact that Catholic doctrine is not correct. Jesus did not, or Mary did not and was not perpetually a virgin. They would try to make up, well, this is, these are kids from Joseph's first marriage and all this stuff. No, the text doesn't lead us that way at all. It just simply says, hey, he had brothers and sisters. And what we know is there's at least four brothers and two sisters here. So why have I taught you that? Well, there's a lot of conjecture about whose wedding this is that is in Cana. So I'm going to conjecture along with others. So you can take it or leave it. The wedding is happening. We don't really know who it is, but, but I think if we think a little bit about who it is, it might help us understand what goes on inside the text. I believe the wedding in Cana is likely Jesus' last sister to be married off. Verse 12 of this paragraph says this, After this, this is the miracle at Cana, the water being turned to wine, 
Um, he went down to Caper Capernaum. This is Jesus. He, Jesus, and his mother, right? And his who? Brothers and his disciples. Notice who's not in that. His sisters. So I believe what is likely going on here is this is Jesus' last sister to be married off. And Jesus is at this wedding, as is his mother would be expected, right? So Cana is not far from Nazareth, and Joseph, Mary's husband, and the father of Jesus' brother and sister is out of the picture. Likely he had tragically died, making Jesus the oldest son and the head of the household. So, so I just want that to, to, to sink in, right? He's got a responsibility in this household with sisters and brothers and a mother, and they are at this wedding, all of them together. <laughs> it seems to me that no sisters are going to Capernaum with them, and it's likely they have been married off, and Jesus is the head of the household. So you all can take or leave my conjecture here, but I believe it makes the best sense of the remainder of the surrounding narrative. It helps us to understand why Mary, Jesus, and all his disciples whom he has just met have been invited to this wedding. Think of that for just a second. I had to ask that question working through the text. Well, didn't Jesus just meet these five guys? How'd they get invited to this wedding? And who gave them authority to do this? These are planned out, long-time things. They didn't, they didn't RSVP. We're going to run out of wine. <laughs> you tracking? And Jesus had the authority to ask them to come to this wedding, which he is likely a big part of. wedding in this culture would have been planned for about a year. The betrothal by the bridegroom would have been followed by his return to his home, in this case Cana, to build a room onto his father's house. At a time determined by the bridegroom's father alone, the bridegroom uh, would go and retrieve his bride with trumpets blaring and everyone celebrating in the streets. The bride and her party were to be ready and to keep oil in their lamps in case the bridegroom showed up in the evening. Some of this should be uh, coming into a clear picture and how we think of eschatology and what is going to happen when the bridegroom Jesus comes back with a shout and the angels and we're to be ready and have oil in our lamps. And the bridegroom had to plan for, and he had to pay for the wedding festivities, which lasted for seven days. Now, I'm going to pray that American tradition doesn't take over uh, or, 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 or leave way to, to Jewish tradition here, because I've always been happy that I wouldn't have to pay for my boys' weddings. <laughs> and every father of every bride thinks, oh, I better start saving to pay for my daughter's wedding, right? But here the tradition is that the man uh, prepares and he pays for this wedding. And it's a big deal. And it very well could be that the last-minute invitation of Jesus' five new disciples complicated the setting and, and caused this setting to run out of wine to happen. And a very embarrassing situation for the bridegroom, no doubt. Now that we have considered the situation, you can take it or leave it. I figured I'd give you something fun to talk about over lunch. Let's take a look at the complication. 
We know what it is, right? Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I like to imagine myself in these settings, and I have a mother, and y'all probably have mothers that you're familiar with. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how, what the tone of this, this statement is necessarily, but my guess is, is if you are involved in this wedding and it's for somebody really important to you, I'm conjecturing it is your daughter's wedding, and your son showed up with some uninvited uh, guests by them and the wine is out, I'm guessing the tone is looking at your son in the face saying, they don't have any left. Y'all drank it. This is embarrassing, right? Do something about this is the tone. I think Mary is, is after here. They have no wine. And no doubt, friends, Mary's strong intention is to get Jesus to do something about it. However, we cannot and should not assume that she meant for Jesus to do a miracle. It's so important for us to put ourselves right where the text is. We on this side of the cross are tempted to think such ways, right? Because we know all of the miracles that Jesus is going to do. But at this point in time, she just sees her son coming back after being gone for a month or a couple months. And they show up to this wedding everybody's supposed to be at, right? And, and he's got uninvited guests. And, and she's saying, you, <laughs> they don't have any wine. I don't think she's intending that Jesus do a miracle. She's never seen a miracle in her life other than the experience, the one of his birth. Mary, to attempt to get Jesus to do her will, constituted a rebuke. You have it there in your text. Woman, what does this have to do with us? In other words, what does the bridegroom running out of wine have to do with Jesus and Mary? The reality is that running out of the wine is the bridegroom's problem. It's the bridegroom's problem. It's not Jesus' problem. It's not Mary's problem. Beloved, how often are we guilty of doing the same thing that Mary did here with an attitude of uh, desiring or getting what we want? We tell the Lord what to do, (laughs) right? We tell him what we want. This whole sect of Christianity who are built on this doctrine, right? You name it and you claim it. You tell God what you want. If you got enough faith, you're going to get it. You just tell God. (laughs) How? How prideful of us to think that. We do it all the time. Peter not putting God's plan first and understanding that he must, Jesus must die and go to the cross, said this, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, Lord. But the Lord answered him in a rebuke similar to that of Mary's here, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. On man's interests. Certainly, beloved, we are called to take our requests and make them known unto God, but never in this heart attitude of, you will do this for me. We are never encouraged to demand anything from God. Rather, we are taught to pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. 
And Jesus' brother James teaches the church to not even make their own plans to do something as simple as plan their work and how they will have an income. James chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says this, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Beloved, when we come to the Lord and tell him, what we're going to do or what we want out of some kind of weird position. We have lost sight of our place with the Lord. Certainly he has called us as sons and daughters and we revel in that. But a son or a daughter does not look to his father, the God of the universe, and tell him what to do. Amen? We walk with, we request, and Jesus would later say, right, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking. That's a different attitude than they don't have any wine. Beloved, this interaction between Jesus and his mother is a sign that their relationship has changed. Jesus, after his baptism and subsequent temptation by Satan himself, he has, uh, uh, he has now set his constitution to only do and say what his heavenly Father has instructed him to do. Effectively, he was no longer taking instructions from his mother, and it was not yet his time to be glorified. It wasn't his time to be glorified. Some would look to, to Jesus saying woman in this text and think that that's some kind of sexist, uh, sexist or, or some kind of ist um, in, as he views his mother, and, and, and clearly Jesus is not going to dishonor his mother. That would be breaking the law. He's going to say this same term, woman, as he's on the cross and John the Apostle is standing there and, and Jesus recognizing that, that his mother would not have anyone to take care of him. He's going to use the same term, woman, behold your son. There is a rebuke in this text uh, and Jesus is telling him it's no longer like back in Luke chapter 2 where we studied and, and, and Jesus had stayed behind, remember, and, and uh, that uh, it got himself in a little bit of trouble as a young man and, and his mom came and rebuked him and, and it said right there in the text that he went on and submitted to her. This is the opposition of this. This is the, in opposition to this. This is the antithesis of that moment where now that is not the way it's going to be. I will not do what you want me to do. It is not yet my time. We've looked at the situation, a Jewish wedding, and the complication. The groom is, is embarrassingly out of wine. Now let's take a look at the resolution. And Mary's uh, rebuke, notice in verse 5, Mary has the right to instruct the servants. This gives evidence of her prominence uh, or status. Again, I believe Mary is the mother of the bride at this wedding. Why else would she be in charge of the servants? Verse 5 says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Beloved, she learned her lesson. Mary understood it. She went from telling her son Jesus what to do to instructing the servants to listen to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come. And we, friends, 2,000 years later, would do well to invite Jesus to our party that we call our lives. Invite him. And when the complications of life come, and they will, we should follow Mary's advice and do whatever Jesus says to do <laughs> in the text of Scripture. Amen? 
Doing this will allow Jesus to manifest his glory in our lives, and without a shadow of a doubt, this will bring pure joy to our lives now and in the future. We can plan and we should plan. We should take time and be careful about our lives and what we do and what we don't do. But how many of you know things rarely go the way we think they're going to? Invite Jesus to your party. (laughs) And when you're confused and the situation comes up in your life and you're not sure what to do, I I, I say this often, and forgive me for kind of beating the horse, don't pray that you get some kind of subjective answer from Jesus. Pray that you'll have the wisdom to turn to God's word. Find what it is that you're supposed to do and pray, 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 beloved, that you have the courage to obey it. The courage to obey it. It is what Jesus has said. He is the Logos. He is the living word. He is the word expressed in your lap in the text of Scripture. Amen. Pray that you will be and have the courage to do it. Verse 6 continues the, the, this manifested and glorious resolution. It says this, Now there were six stone water parts, pots set there for Jewish for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So you can do the quick math. That is 120 to 180 gallons of water. You might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the word baptizo when Jesus was getting baptized. And we talked about there, there was all kinds of Jewish customs. And we went to Mark chapter 7, and, and I showed you that, that the word washed and cleansed Behind those two words were baptizo, right? They, they, were this, they, they are the baptism, the ceremonial washing, and that is what's going on. These water pots are here at this wedding because it's going to go on for seven days and there's going to be ceremonial washing of certain dishes and your hands before you ate, and, and that's what these water pots are here to do. Now, it's likely this is happening a little later in the wedding feast, and so those pots are starting to get empty, and so Jesus says what he says here. In verse 7, fill the water pots with water. So they filled him up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Somewhere in the white space between verse 7 and verse 8, Jesus turns that water into wine. He turns it into wine. Now, If you think back to our summer series as we built our way up to the life of Christ, you'll remember that we went through the prophetic sections of the text where uh, the Messiah is not just going to be this figure, this political figure who rules and reigns over the nations of the world, and he will, but he is one who restores. Somehow, their life seems to be lengthened. Somehow, there's fruit on the vine everywhere, right? There's, there's this restorative nature that, that the Messiah brings that's beyond just the, the supernatural reality that we will spend eternity with God, right? There is a restorative nature, and, and that which fell in the Garden of Eden and was cursed, where man had to work the dirt and thorns and thistles came out, when the Messiah shows up, that reverse is not just spiritual for you and I, although it is. Amen and amen. The earth begins to produce in ways that are not normal to you and I. And here we have the Messiah doing a miracle. 
Not, it's not normal <laughs> turning water to wine. Amen? It points to his Messiahship. It points to this season when, when he will rule and reign over the earth. And things, the curse will be reversed, not just salvifically, right? But, but the whole earth. Genesis starts with the whole earth following, falling and being cursed. Flip to the back of your Bible and what are you going to find? The whole earth is restored and new and a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we don't need a sun anymore because the light of Christ right, is lighting up the universe. Doesn't seem too normal to us, right? Between seven and eight, they, Jesus turned the water into wine. Friends, the head waiter was the officiant of the seven-day wedding feast. Whether he was aware of the wine shortage or not, it is understood that he needed to taste the wine before allowing it to be served. So the head waiter becomes the first human now. Listen to this. Have you ever heard this? That tasted heavenly. <laughs> Pause and think for just a second. <laughs> I don't know what the wine that Jesus made tasted like, but it certainly tasted heavenly. Amen? No gathering grapes, no squishing grapes, no fermenting process, right? No straining, no sitting, no time, right? Just immediately heavenly wine. Can you imagine it? I can't. Verse 9 says that when the head waiter tested the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, imagine their amazement, they're the ones that had to, have you ever carried a 30-gallon pot of water? I'm sure that was fun, right? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Beloved, I didn't take the time to, to look at this miracle, but in light of the fact that the Messiah is going to restore the earth, um, everything Jesus does as a miracle is in excess. It's always better than what you could imagine. There's always 12 baskets of bread left over and fish where there was none. It points to his messiahship. It points to his ability. It points to, to, to manifesting the glory of God with us on this earth. Can you imagine? No doubt the bridegroom is surprised, right? He was probably thinking that uh, as he had been summoned by the head waiter that this was going to be a moment of mass embarrassment. But somehow, unannounced to him, his worst nightmare turns into his proudest moment. And beloved, like Bubba from Forrest Gump, who was translated from the horrors of Vietnam War uh, to pure joy and the prospect of having his shrimp and shrimp boat ownership, this young man went from the horrors of social embarrassment to the smile and lightheartedness of pure joy. Pure joy. Jesus had secretly manifested his glory for the first time. Friends, some people like to come here to justify their drinking habits, saying Jesus partied with 180 gallons of wine. Well, we might agree that he partied, and I think that's worthy of pausing and realizing in Jesus' humanity and in his deity that he paused to celebrate marriage. He paused to celebrate the very thing that he had instituted 
for humanity. And believe me, I don't think he's sitting in a corner thinking, oh, these sinners are dancing around and drinking wine, right? I'm guessing he's dancing around and drinking wine with them. So some would come to this and say, ha, Jesus made wine, and so we should drink and party. (laughs) But in response to this, it's good to remember, right, the balance of the Scripture, that being drunk is a sin, and Jesus is certainly not going to promote drunkenness. Wine was a social drink, much like Americans like to get together for a cup of coffee or Europeans and others for a cup of tea. Wine symbolized joy and was a promise that represented the coming of the Messiah. There are many texts that I could bring up here, but I went to Jeremiah 31 as that great New Covenant text. Jeremiah 31, 12 uh, is this wonderful messianic prophetic section of the text, and the Lord described Israel's joy with the words new wine, a metaphor at the messianic arrival. I have it here before you. They will shout, they is Israel here at the coming of the Messiah. They will, they will come and shout for what? Joy. They will shout for joy. Why? The Messiah is here, right? On the height of Zana, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord. Again, this restorative nature of the Messiah to bring creation back into order, into that pre-fall state, back into this Edamic state, right? The Eden, the garden. They're going to shout for joy. The Messiah not only brings salvation, but he restores the earth over Listen here, the bounty of the Lord, it's bountiful. Over the grain and the new wine and the oil, all restorative language. And over the young of the flock and the herd and their life will be like a watered garden. And for how long? And they will never languish again. I don't think we've seen that quite yet, right? Dr. Stephen Davey, the president of Shepherd's Theological Seminary, when teaching about the alcoholic content of wine in first century Israel, quoted a historian who said this, quote, one would need to drink 11 eight-ounce glasses of wine to consume the same amount of alcohol found in one glass today. In other words, the historian said it was possible to become intoxicated from New Testament wine, but one's drinking would affect the bladder long before it affected the mind. This is the attitude. We come together. We are celebrating. We are having our glass of wine, and we are, it is bringing the remembrance of these promises, these messianic promises together. And we are celebrating, and certainly there's a level of joy, right, from enjoying that wine in the glass. It's not like they just went over to the fridge and grabbed a Coca-Cola because they were feeling it, right? Water was the drink of the day. And to have wine mixed with that water, right? The flavor, oh, the heavenly wine that Jesus must have made. Amen? Amen. So, beloved, we have studied the situation, the complication, and the resolution. Now let's take a look at that which causes pure joy in the human heart. The joy that the Apostle Paul had, regardless of his, his, his horrific circumstances, the manifestation of God's glory in his son Jesus for salvation, right? Let's look at the celebration. Verse 11 says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
There it is. Was it about wine and parties? Was it about being the head of the household? Was it about marrying off my last sister? No. Everything in Jesus' life moving forward is about you and I, according to John, coming to know the Messiah, repent of our sins, and spending eternity with him. Jesus' manifested glory, the signs, the miracles, beloved, they, 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 they get our attention and they should, but they are not to be unto themselves. They are not an end to themselves. The idea is that, listen to me, oh, by the way, I raised this person from the dead. Well, don't get hung up on that. The idea is that is pointing, is pointing to this message, repent and believe. Believe me. I have the authority to tell you that if you, you repent and put your faith in me, you'll spend eternity with me. That is the signs. You could wrap them all up by just saying that. What is the purpose of the signs? That you would believe. There are many church traditions that say when Jesus was a child, he performed miracles. That is not what the New Testament declares at all. We have just read it. We studied in Luke that Jesus in his humanity had to grow in strength and wisdom and that he did not operate independently from his Father's will. Now we see the first sign manifested and notice what the sign or that miracle produced. His disciples believed in him. If you were with us last week, you will remember that we went to the back of John's gospel and read the purpose for which he wrote it. It's recorded in John chapter 20, verse 31. John in that verse is referring to the last miraculous sign that Jesus gave the world, his resurrection from the dead. John had mentioned that if, we, that if he were to write down every miraculous deed that Jesus did, that he supposed that the, <coughs> all of the books of the world could not contain the words. But he said this, but these have been written so that what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Beloved, this is the beginning of the sign. It's the beginning of the ministry. We just read about the end of the ministry. The point of, of the signs is to point us to believe, to beg us to believe the message. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Friends, a miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee didn't miss the mark. Those brand new disciples of Jesus who had been obedient to John the Baptist and followed Jesus at his invitation to come and see and to follow me, it didn't miss. Not only was this the beginning of the signs and wonders that could fill the books of the world, but Jesus manifested his glory so that these miracles would shock us 2,000 years later and cause us to repent of our sinful lifestyles and, like these early disciples, cause us to believe. To believe. Beloved, the big picture here is that Jesus manifested his glory so that all who believe may have pure joy, pure joy. And when we have the surety of eternal salvation, we can bear up under any trial. And whether we can identify with the fictitious Bubba in a life-threatening circumstance or the real ones like the Apostle Paul experienced, if you and I repent and follow Christ, 
we will be able to say with Paul, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Don't put your hope in the things of the world. They're going to let you down. Don't put your hope in your spouse. Don't put your hope in your pastor. Don't put your hope in anything other than Christ. And I promise you, if you do that, you will have pure joy. Amen? We're going to struggle through life together. We're going to go through struggles together. We're going to have victories together. Either way, if we put our hope in each other or some other circumstance, we will fall. Put your hope in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this first miracle, this message, God, that you have given us to point us to your Son. We thank you, Lord, that he manifested his glory in this way. And God, I pray for myself and areas of my own unbelief in life where I would return to you, put you where you belong, Lord, put my hope in you that you might bring joy in this life and in the life to come. Lord, I pray the same for each one in here, those who are struggling through your circumstances, situations, maybe as horrific as some of those that Paul uh, was going through. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help all of us to get our eyes off of those circumstances and onto you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might have joy. Lord, I pray for all those who may not know you this morning, even those who may be confused about knowing you. Lord, would you draw them near? Would you save them? We know it takes you to do that. Help them, Lord, to humble themselves, reach out and cry out to you. Lord, we know you're faithful to save, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.